Okay, let's pray and we will get started. Lord, thank you for your love for us. Uh, We want to know you. Uh, We want to understand you as the triune God and who you've revealed yourself to be. So help us, help us to believe. Give us faith to believe that you are who you said you are in your word. In your name we pray. Amen. So let's start by reading again the Nicene Creed. It's on your notes. Uh, It says, We believe in one God, Father, all-sovereign, maker of all things seen and unseen, and in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten from the Father as only begotten, that is, from the substance of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence, one in with the Father, through whom all things came into existence, the things in heaven and the things on earth, who because of men in our salvation came down and was incarnated, made man, suffered and arose the third day, ascended into heaven, comes to judge the living and the dead. And we believe in one Holy Spirit. And to those who say there was once when he was not, or he was not before he was begotten, or he came into existence from nothing, or who affirmed that the Son of God is of another nature or substance, or a creature, or mutable, or subject to change, such ones the Catholic or universal and apostolic church pronounces accursed and separated from the church. So recall what we've seen over the last several weeks, that Arius only wanted to stress the oneness of God. Arius, the heretic who was condemned at the Council of Nicaea, where the Nicene Creed was birthed. And that's why the Nicene Creed begins by stressing one God. It comes out of the gate emphasizing monotheism, that there's only one true God. And when Arius read the first five words, he would have agreed wholeheartedly. But he would struggle later in the creed when the nature and essence and eternality of Jesus is stressed. So we see the oneness of God right out of the gate. But we also see the threeness of God in the Nicene Creed. Why? Because Christians are Trinitarian. Do we affirm the oneness of God? Yes. But do we affirm the oneness of God to the neglect of the threeness of God? No, we don't. Remember, to be a Christian, you have to be able to count to what? To three. Counting to one is not enough. You have to be able to count to three. To be a member of this church, you have to be able to count to three. Here's what our doctrinal statement says uh, under B, the Trinity. We believe that there is one living and true God, eternally existing in three persons, that these are equal in every divine perfection, and that they execute distinct but harmonious offices in the work of creation, providence, and uh, redemption. So to be a member of the church, our church here at Grace, you have to believe this. To be a Christian, I think you have to believe this. So the million dollar question is this. How in the world do we begin to understand that God is one and God is three? How can God be one and three? Before we answer that, let me share something Uh, with you so that you know why I want to spend so much time talking about the Trinity. We're going to talk about uh, the Trinity tonight. We'll continue next week looking at uh, Father, Son, and Spirit, a little bit more unpacking 
the Nicene Creed, like what does it mean that Jesus was begotten? And then looking at, if we have time, uh, is Jesus equal in every divine perfection with the Father, as our statement of faith says? Or uh, is there some sort of structure in the Godhead? So we'll talk about that just to tease that out a little bit. Uh, Does Jesus submit to the Father in eternity past? Or is that limited to his incarnation? So we'll talk about that next week if we have time. So I'll tease that out for you. Uh, According to our statement of faith, I would say that Jesus is equal in every divine perfection with the Father. So you kind of know where maybe I'm heading with that. So the million dollar question though is, how do we begin to understand that God is one and God is three? Before we look at that and before I explain uh, why I want to... I want to explain why I'm spending so much time on the Trinity, but before I do that, I want to share a story with you. Several years ago when I was pastoring a church in Texas, I was asked by a seminary student to answer a few questions about the Trinity for a class project at Dallas Theological Seminary, which is where I went to seminary. And so these were his three questions. He, he found me online or something and sent me an email. I didn't know who he was. And he, these were his three questions. Does the doctrine of the Trinity tangibly influence your ministry? If so, how? Have you taught this doctrine? How so? And third, how about in your personal life? And so after I replied, saying that the doctrine of the Trinity influences every aspect of my personal life and ministry, and that yes, I have and do teach this doctrine, uh, he replied, and here's his response email. He said, Benji, you might be interested to know that everyone in my group had pretty much the same results. It pretty much seemed like DTS, Dallas Seminary graduates, responded with depth, understanding, and personal application. Everyone else presented a basic knowledge of the Trinity. To be honest with you, it was pretty scary to read the other interviews after reading yours. Whether the congregation knows it or not, they are trusting their pastors to teach them in depth the Trinity. From the responses of the other pastors, I have to think their flocks are starving. What a sad commentary. For pastors and churches who aren't teaching their people about God. It seems to me like that's the one thing you want to get right. Is you want to teach people about the God they love and serve. And not everything else. So a sad commentary. And this is why we want to spend so much time looking at the doctrine of God. We want to be fed uh, with the truth of who God is as Father, Son, and Spirit. We know in Scripture God has revealed Himself as the Trinitarian God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And because He has revealed Himself this way, He must have felt that it was important for us to know Him as He truly is, as triune. Does it make a difference? Absolutely. Because as we've seen, if you have a faulty or limited view of God, it will affect every area of your life. Sadly, Many Christians are never taught about the Trinity. I heard of a study once where almost 4,000 seminary students between two different seminaries uh, revealed that out of those 4,000 students, only 1.5% could ever recall their pastor ever teaching them about the Trinity. How sad. I've been haunted by the words of one of my professors from seminary, Dr. Jeff Bingham, who has shaped my thinking in many ways. I've mentioned him several times. He said this in class, does your pastor love you enough to teach you about the triune God? And that stuck with me. So it's only by God's grace 
that my eyes were open to the understanding how important it is. Because obviously some pastors don't. And so ever since I heard that question in class, I'm going to teach people about the triune God. So back to those two questions. How in the world do we begin to understand that God is one and that God is three? How can God be one and three? Well, the first thing we need to realize is that we are called, what we're called to do in Scripture is not figure out the Trinity as if God were some algebraic equation, as if the Trinity were some sort of difficult math problem, some code that we're supposed to crack. That's not what God calls us to do at all. Scripture calls us to believe what Scripture says about the Trinity. We're called to believe, not to fully understand. Thank God, right? Thank God we're not, we're not called to fully understand God because who can fully understand God? By the way, whoever said that understanding God would be easy? Is understanding God easy? Not at all, because He's of another nature than us. I want to know who said that it would be easy to understand God, that it would be easy to understand that God is triune. And why do we assume that understanding God is hard and yet understanding the gospel is supposed to be easy? Because I've heard that. Well, understanding God, that's, that's uh, hard. But the gospel, well, that's easy to understand. The Trinity is easy to understand, people say, if you use some analogy. But the gospel, oh man, it's, you know, it's hard to wrap your brain around that. Is the gospel easy to understand? No. No. Is the gospel easy to comprehend? I've shared this before, but listen to this. Tell me if this is easy to understand. The sovereign God, Jesus, God the Son, spoke the world into existence from nothing. Imagine that. He becomes a human being. God who spoke the world into existence from nothing actually became a human being where he was born in a humble manner, surrounded by filthy farm animals. As a baby, he has to have his diaper changed. God has to have his diaper changed. And he can't survive unless he sucks milk out of his mother's breast. And he is dependent on her milk to survive another day. And he lives 33 years and he never sins. He gets arrested. He gives no defense. No argument. Apology. He doesn't even get an attorney. And he allows himself to be nailed to a cross for other people's sins. And he didn't call on a myriad of angels who could have come to his defense, and he willingly dies. Is that easy to understand? Is that easy to comprehend? Does that make sense to your rational mind? We think God is hard to understand, and the gospel is somehow easy? Not really. So Christianity is not about what makes sense. A lot of people approach Christianity that way, is that this is something that should make sense. But Christianity is not about what you can get your mind around. It's not about what is reasonable. It's not about what is sensible or makes sense. In fact, Martin Luther said, reason is a whore, the greatest enemy faith has. In other words, reason is a whore, will sleep with anyone. Christianity is about faith, right? Remember, we are a people of faith. It's about believing the testimony of the apostles and prophets as recorded in God's word. And so the same God that can give you faith to believe in the gospel, and God has to give it, right? We've talked about this before. It's regeneration. God has to make you alive and give you faith. The faith, same God that can give you faith to believe in Jesus Christ is the same God that can give you faith to believe in the Trinity. 
even though you don't understand it. But we live in a culture that says don't believe anything unless it is rational, sensible, logical, and makes sense. And that's why so many people want to test Christianity by reason. However, the scriptures, God's word must test reason. God's word must be elevated above reason. So some say, okay, pastor, then how do I explain the Trinity to a six-year-old? Well, let me ask you, how do you explain the Trinity to a 36-year-old? Any differently? Is it easier to explain the Trinity to a 30-year-old? No. So my first goal as a pastor and as a father is not to explain. My first goal is to summarize what the apostles and prophets have said in God's word about God and then plead with people to believe it, to plead with my family to believe the scriptures, to plead with you to believe the scriptures. Only after that is my goal to explain things the best way that I can. All right, we'll pause for any comments or questions. Marianne? I don't know how it's going to come out because it's all in my head. Uh, but like you say, God gives us that faith when you say it. He gives us that trust. But then I think there's deeper levels, and I think we are to pray that God would just give us the faith and the trust and uh, depend on that faith and trust that we already have within him. Within him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think we can. He gives us the faith to believe, and then we want to know God more. And so what does Paul pray in Ephesians? He prays that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened in order that you would know. So we can grow. Yes, and we want to pray. I want to know as much as God as I can. Even when I get to eternity, it's not like we're going to get a chip downloaded and like you know all about God. We will never fully know God, right? Because he's God. We can't fully know God. It's not like 10,000 years into eternity. We're like, ah, finally, we have God figured out. He is infinite, and so it's impossible for us to ever fully know him as he is. It will take thousands and thousands of years, and we'll be like, uh, we got like 0.5% of him, we understand. So yeah, once he gives us faith, we can pray, give me more faith, help me to know you more, and read books, and study scripture, and have conversations, because we want to know him. It's kind of like, it's anyone that you love, you want to know them, and I want to know God as much as I can in this life. And so, by looking at his word and praying, we can. Yeah. Steve? Well, if we could figure God out, we would be a puny God, a small g God. So, I agree yeah. with what you said. We'll never totally figure him out. And that's something that we look forward to in eternity. Yeah. The quest to know God better. Otherwise, we would be God then. If we could figure him out, then we would attain that. Yeah, I agree. It'll take thousands and thousands of years. We'll probably get up there and be like, wow, I knew you were big, but like you are beyond what, you know, I even, I was just scratching the surface, I realize now. So, yeah. If you want to read a great book, this is a great book called None Greater, uh, The Undomesticated Attributes of God, written by Matthew Barrett. It is deep waters explaining God's aseity uh, and all of his divine attributes. And it's worth reading. You've got to go through it slow. It'll make your brain hurt. But understanding who God is is called None Greater. I took a few guys through it uh, at the end of last year. By Matthew um, Barrett, I believe is the last name. Just looking at all of the attributes of God, you will read that and you will get a migraine and be humbled that God is beyond 
He's so far beyond us. And you start reading that, and you're like, oh my goodness. Man, I know very little of God. So I recommend this book to you, uh, Deep, Deep Waters. Take your time. Um, it's, it's really good. Any other comments or questions? We'll move on. It's probably a situation where the more you get to know, the more you know what you don't know. Yes. Yeah. I guess I'll ask this question. After the, the no part, I was just thinking about the verse in 1 Corinthians 13, 12. For now we see only a reflection as in the mirror, then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Is he speaking yeah. of Christ here that will know the person of Christ more fully than we know him now? Or? Probably just that we will see him in, in, with glorified eyes and understand him uh, in a deeper way. But clearly, I don't, I don't think it can mean that we will be... We can know him fully. Yeah, I, I but, have yeah. That. yeah, yeah. I just think we'll get there and be like, it's, it's like getting new glasses. You get new glasses, you're like, man, I, I really was like, <laughs> I thought it was my eyes were bad, but they were bad. You know, I think it's, I think that's what he's getting at there. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, how do we explain the Trinity? Most people try to use some analogy to do so. So let me tip you off ahead of time that I believe that all of these attempts at explaining the Trinity using an analogy fall short and should be avoided. If you use them, that's okay. I don't think we should use analogies at all. God is of a divine nature, not an earthly nature. He's not like anything in this world. Paul says in Romans 1, God, we, we, we can know his divine nature, know that he has a divine nature That means that he is holy, that he's separate and distinct and different from us. He's of a different nature than all of created nature. And that's what the word holy means. It means different, set apart, distinct. We tend to think of holy as what? Pure, Pure, without sin. And God is pure. And there's an aspect of holiness that means that. Um, But at its core, the word holy Uh, In Hebrew, kadosh means different, set apart, unique, distinct. And that's why you have priests in the the, uh, Old Testament who are called what? Holy. That's why you have dishes, you have pots and pans in the tabernacle that are called holy. So if it's just pure with a moral element, then that can't be right. But that's not what the word is getting at. It means to be set apart. If holy just had a moral component, how could a bowl or a snuffer be holy if it was just had a moral component? So it means that priests and dishes and the curtains, etc. were all set apart unto God. When we say that God is holy, we mean he's other, of a different nature, uh, completely distinct from creation, set apart from creation. So how do we explain the Trinity? A lot of people, well-meaning, have tried to use some analogy to do so. I think these should be avoided. In the past, I had used them, but here are the most common suggestions. Don't beat yourself up if if you've used an analogy to try to explain the Trinity. I think we should just learn from our errors and then simply call on people to believe God's Word. So you've probably heard of all of these at some point. Um, I felt dissatisfied with these as a young Christian, and I was on the search to find a better one, which I'll reveal in a moment. But number one, you have God in your pantry, the pretzel, right? Three parts and one piece. And so some people try to say, look at a pretzel. That's what God is like. (laughs) I don't know what you do if you sprinkle salt on top. I don't know if you get a side of mustard. But 
God in the pantry. You also have number two, God in your shower. The three-in-one shampoo. Shampoo, conditioner, and shower gel. We can do better than this, right? You ever heard this? Well. Number three, God in your kitchen. And this was probably one of the more popular ones. Anyone know what it is? You're just making these up. I'm just making that. Yeah. <laughs> okay, egg, an egg. We'll get to that. Okay, hold, hold the egg. That's a good one. I'm thinking ice, water, and steam. She said maybe God in your... Uh... Triple point of water. Come on. What's that? Triple point of water. Yes. A great one. <laughs> or not. <laughs> Again, uh, that's another popular one. God in your fruit basket, the apple. You got the skin, the meat, the core. God in your chicken, the egg, shell, yolk, egg white. And finally, the one that I think is best. I think it even trumps the water one, Carl. Okay. It's what I came up after I was dissatisfied with all these before I realized that we shouldn't use analogies to explain God. Number six, God in your iPod. ZZ Top. Three members, one group, right? You know the rock band ZZ Top? you got three members, they're one group, they're called ZZ Top. Uh, that was my feeble attempt to explain the Trinity as a young person. All of these examples want to show what God is like in his nature. They start with saying God is like, but don't go there. Exactly. God is not like anything here on earth. You, can, you can't point to anything in this world and say God is like that. Because there's nothing in creation that is like its creator. All of these analogies are at best a form of modalism. And at worst, they are pagan. So do you see how these analogies are just modalism? Do you remember what is modalism? Can someone tell me what modalism is? What's that? You can only do one thing at a time. Yeah, he can only be... God or Jesus. Yeah, he can only be one person of the Trinity at any given time. So that's what these analogies... I think really are like. And so I think Sibelius and Praxius would have loved these because they'd have been like, oh yeah, you, you ate the apple down to the core. Well, now you're just left with the Holy Spirit. Uh, God is not like a pretzel or shampoo or water or an apple or an egg. And God is certainly not like the pagan rock group from Texas, ZZ Top, right? Which is made up of two members who have extremely long beards, right? And yet their drummer who has no beard, you know what his name is? Frank Beard. <laughs> and we want to say God is like ZZ Top. God is not like nothing in creation. He's holy. He's different. He's set apart. He's in a whole other category. He is unlike anything that you and I have ever seen. He's not like an egg, an apple, shampoo, or pretzel. So how do the apostles and prophets describe God in Scripture? They don't mention apples or eggs, Right? But so many of us, I think, cling to our beloved ideas about God. We, we love our analogies. I shared this a few weeks ago in a sermon. Ralph Davis says, do we worship our conceptions of God or God? God is free to be who he is. Or do I make him my prisoner subject to what I think he should be? A Christian must keep asking himself, am I worshiping the God of the Bible or only God as I think of him? So the Bible, what the Bible does is it calls us to believe uh, what it says about God, which can be summed up this way. There is one God eternally existing in three persons. Now you may ask the question, what about when the Bible uses metaphor? Scripture does use metaphor to describe God, but it usually describes his heart and how he reacts and, and deals with his people. 
God compares, uh, Scripture compares God to a mother hen. Psalm 17, hide me under the shadow of your wings. Does God really have wings? No. It's communicating how God is in relationship to his people, how he cares for them and protects them. Likewise, God is called uh, a judge, a shepherd, things like that. God, uh, the scripture also uses anthropomorphism to describe God, which it, it, it uh, gives God a human characteristic, like saying the arm of the Lord. Does God really have an arm? God is spirit. Does he really have eyes? He does in the person of Jesus, obviously, but scripture will use anthropomorphism and describe God this way. But it's talking about who he is and not who he is in his essence and nature. It's how he relates to people. So all of these metaphors are used to describe God, but they're not saying in his nature. He's like a mother hen. You can hide under his wings. So the problem happens when we take metaphysical things that are around us and try to explain God. And so what scripture does, like in this book, None Greater, it assigns God qualities like holy and omnipresent and omniscient and omnipotent. But God in his nature is not like anything. So what do we do? We have to say what scripture says and we have to be silent when scripture is silent. God could have said in Second Hezekiah Fourteen two. I'm like an egg, but he didn't. Therefore, we need not describe God with creaturely beings because he is not a creature. He is the creator. So the best picture that we have trying to understanding the Trinity is on your handout. It's that little uh, uh, drawing. Uh, uh, it's a present. It, it, yeah, yeah. it does, right? <laughs> The Father, there's one God. The Father is God. The Son is God. The Holy Spirit is God. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Father. So, whichever way you travel on this little diagram, I think this is the best thing that we have. It's the best picture that we have in understanding. The Father is God, but He is not the Son or the Spirit. And the Son of God is God, but He's not the Father or the Spirit. And the Spirit is God, but He's not the Father or the Son. So we have one God, three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And so what do we do if we don't quite get it? We believe the testimony of the apostles and prophets in God's word. And if we don't, we'll go wrong. Any comments or questions at this point? Uh, probably the confusion comes when, I don't know, maybe we try to make a mental uh, form of, what God is, because we, you know, if we go to Genesis, we know that God created us in His image, mm-hmm. according to His um, His likeness. Yeah, yeah likeness. Yeah. So mm-hmm. we feel, oh, so maybe He, you know, has yeah. some sort yeah. of form or image like yeah. us. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe, yeah. You know, when I think of God, I think of my Father, my, yeah. my Heavenly Father, and I. I relate to him as, oh, you're my father, you know. I go to him as my father or dad. I don't know, we impersonate him because he helps us. Yeah, and and we do. We relate to him as father. We'll we'll talk about it in just a minute. He is father. What he actually looks like is, the, the, the best we could say is at least Jesus, we know he's a human being. But you're right, we do tend to think of these ideas in our head. And I think that's why in the Old Testament, you see, you know, in the Ten Commandments, it's like, don't make any image of God 
I mean, right from the get-go, God's coming out and saying, you're not going to be able to find anything in creation that looks like me, so don't try to do that. Even though I think we do wonder in our mind, what is he like? But how we relate to him, we can relate to him because he is our father. Um, Does that make sense? Yeah. 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 So. So let's go back to the Nicene Creed. Let's read the first phrase again. We believe in one God, Father, all sovereign, maker of all things seen and unseen. So the Council of Nicaea, you see right at the very beginning, starts with monotheism, one God. But what's the next word? Father. After they mention the one God, they immediately refer to him as Father. Why do they do that first? Why do they say we believe in one God, Father? Because of Arius. Recall, Arius was a monotheist. He believed in one God, but Arius only believed in one God. Arius was not Trinitarian. Um, He only believed in one God. And even then, he, he believed that he said, yeah, God's Father, but... God became a father after he created Jesus. So Arius viewed God as first and foremost creator before he's ever father. So when Arius started talking about God, he he did not begin by talking about the son of God, Jesus, or even God the father. Arius began his idea by calling God by these words, the unoriginate or the uncaused. And by what Arius meant was that God was the uncreated creator. So he began his Discussions, his preaching, his understanding of God by referring to God as the creator. The problem, however, with beginning any discussion of God as first and foremost as creator is that you are defining your idea of God based on his works, what he does, and not his relationships or his essence or nature. So Arius began his understanding of God as creator, not trinity, As creator, not father. And it seems uh, so subtle like it's not a big deal. But it is. Because we must begin our understanding of God not based on his works. What he does as creator. But based on his essence. His nature. His relationships within the Trinity. Because before God was ever creator. He was what? Father, son, spirit. Enjoying one another in eternity before he ever created anything, right? So Arius wanted to go back to the moment when God first created something, which he would have said was Jesus. And then Jesus created angels, angelic beings that flew around and then the world. So Arius went back to just creator and not going further back into eternity past before God ever created anything. There was just the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And so any concept of God that does not from the outset include the mutual relationships within the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, any conversation about God that doesn't include the Father begetting His begotten Son, meaning Jesus has the same essence in nature, it bears no relation to the living God. It's Arian. It's heresy. So look again at the first phrase. We believe in one God, Father, all sovereign, maker of all things seen and unseen. So notice the Nicene Creed does not deny that God is the maker. It does not deny that God is creator. It does not, but it does not begin defining God as maker or creator. It begins with one God, Father. And that's how the writer of Hebrews uh, begins. He begins first by referring to God as Father and then mentioning God's Son. Listen to Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, 
God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So the preacher of Hebrews starts with God and then immediately mentions God's Son before he ever moves on to talk about God as creator. So before we can talk about God being the creator and the ruler and the maker, we must first see him as father and we must go back into eternity past before he's created anything to see this. And in eternity past, we have the father and the son loving and enjoying one another in community before anything was ever created. So when we go back into eternity past, we have God the Father loving Jesus in the Spirit. That's what Jesus said in John 17, verse 24. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. So you want to know what God was doing before he created angels? This world, this universe, Saturn, Jupiter, the Milky Way. Before God was doing anything else, he was loving his son. John 17, 24, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. This means that God is a loving father through and through. God the Father is love. Father is not just a job description of God. He created this world as a loving, selfless, giving father. He rules as a loving, selfless, giving father. He creates as a loving, selfless, giving father. All that God the Father does, he does as a father. He is the creator, but he creates as a father. And that's what he was doing in eternity past. This will change how you read the Bible. He's a father through and through. And this helps us understand what it means to be a Christian. What is a Christian? How would you describe what a Christian is? J.I. Packer nails it in his book, Knowing God. He says this, what is a Christian? The question can be answered in many ways. But the richest answer I know is that a Christian is one who has God as father. You sum up the whole of New Testament teaching in a single phrase if you speak of it as a revelation of the fatherhood of the Holy Creator. In the same way, you sum up the whole of New Testament religion if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's Holy Father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctively Christian as opposed to merely Jewish is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is the Christian name for God. Isn't that good? That's like street-level theology. That should comfort your heart. Martin Luther said, We may look into his fatherly heart and sense how boundlessly he loves us. That would warm our hearts, setting them aglow with thankfulness. You have a father who is graciously and tenderly directing every step of your life. A caring father. Mary Ann, you have something? Yes, father is the name for God He says Father is the Christian name for God, meaning coming out of the Old Testament, that we can call God Father. Uh, That doesn't mean we exclusively set God the Father up above the other two members of the Trinity, but that gets at the heart of it, because if you have a Father, then what does that mean? 
you have a son. Because you can't be a father if you don't have a son. And so by going to starting with the father, you realize that leads you to Jesus. Even if you start with Jesus the son, where does that lead you? Back to the father. If this is a son, he must have a father. And so we see this emphasis on the Father right at the beginning of the Nicene Creed. And I know some people had terrible fathers, and I'm sorry to hear that. And that does shape, that can shape how you view God. I have an incredible father. He's loving and giving and tender and caring and kind. He and my mother are the most giving people that I know. My dad is a great father, he loves his kids. He loves his grandkids. He loves his family. He's provided and cared for us. He taught us how to work hard and never be lazy and don't make excuses. So by God's grace, I think I have the greatest dad in the world. And that may not be your story. And if it's not, don't let your experience of your earthly father paint the picture of your heavenly father. Kelly Capick uh, describes how many Christians view God the Father He says, unfortunately, many Christians often have a distorted view of the Heavenly Father. We tend to view Him as angry and full of wrath toward us. While we imagine Jesus as the one who loves us, the Father is portrayed as full of hesitation toward us. Distant at best, furious at worst. It is as if Jesus pleads with the Father to put up with us and to let us live. Perhaps even against the Father's desire. We often view Jesus as the kind person of the Trinity, with the Father only wanting us punished. Is the Father, in fact, really reluctant to show tenderness toward people? According to John Owen, the whole movement of the biblical drama of redemption points in a different direction. Jesus is not the one who convinces the Father to love us, but rather the Son of God becomes incarnate in light of the Father's eternal and free love toward us. The Father is not at odds with the Son, but rather God the Father is love. And out of His love, He sent His Son to die for our sins. While the work of Christ is all important for redemption, it does not make the Father love us, but is rather the outgrowth of His love, God's love. And so that's why I think the Nicene Creed starts with the Father at the beginning. To let them know that God is a loving, caring Father Uh, Eventually they will get to the Son and then to the Spirit. Uh, Questions or comments? I went through my notes quicker than I thought. You guys all understand the Trinity now, right? (laughs) If you're looking for a few books, I mentioned John Owen. John Owen's book, Communion with God, there's like a... uh, There's a big three-part book that's all put together... Justin Taylor is the editor. It's called Commun- There's a small book called Communion with God, and I think this one is called uh, the small version of Owen is called Communion with God. The three-part thing is called uh, uh, it's something with Communion with God. I can't remember off the top of my head. This book has saved my life. This book has changed my view of God. Uh, I've gone back to it several times when I've just been. Like, I felt like my heart was a desert. And it's Owen. He's Puritan. He has long sentences. He probably averages eight commas per sentence. But he's worth it. You just take your time going through three to paragraph at a time and just mull it over. He will uh, explain the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, how they work in redemption and creation. 
Uh, like I said, this book has literally saved my life on several occasions. Uh, an easier one to read is called is by Michael Reeves. And it is called Delighting in the Trinity. Really short, Delighting in the Trinity. Really short, easy to read. Uh, it has been um, a great book for myself. If you want a children's book, which really isn't a children's book when you're talking about the Trinity, because it's the same way you, you should share the Trinity with anyone. Uh, Big Thoughts for Little Thinkers by Joey Allen. Is one of the best I think out there. Big thoughts for little thinkers. There's actually this is a part of a series um, with uh, talks about the gospel. Um, there's there's four or five in this series that are are really good. Um, but if you go with any of these books right here, uh, obviously John Owen. He's the John, Justin Taylor's the editor. This one's by John Owen. These two are going to be deeper waters, just to give you a heads up. Um, this one's much easier to read. I recommend uh, those. Off the top of my head, that's what I would recommend. Any other questions or comments on that? Those are solid resources. Um, okay, we'll wrap up unless anyone else has any other questions. Next week we'll get into, we'll start talking more about the Nicene Creed, about what does it mean that Jesus was begotten, what... Uh, what does that mean? We'll talk about why the ESV translation several years ago decided we don't like the word begotten and we're going to say the one and only son. So we use the ESV translation here. We read from it. We preach from it. It's great. Wasn't happy that they took out the word begotten. Uh, I'm a Nicene Creed guy. I'm all about Nicaea and for whatever they explain why uh, they took out the word begotten and added one and only son and I wasn't happy with that aspect of their translation, but otherwise I still use it. But anyway, we'll talk about that next week. And then we'll, we'll get into, if we have time, looking at uh, whether or not there uh, is an hierarchy, an order in the Trinity. Uh, does Jesus submit to God the Father in eternity past, or was that just limited to his incarnation? There was a big debate about the Trinity that erupted in 2017 among pastors and theologians and seminary professors. And on one side, you have people saying, yes, he did, and he does always submit to the Father. And you had people on the other side saying, no, go back to Nicaea. And we settled this in the fourth century. And why are we saying this? So um, you'll on those who agree, those who think that Jesus submits to to the Father in eternity past, you're going to find a lot of authors and pastors that you know landing on that one side and then on the other side uh, the right side <clears throat> uh, you have uh, Athanasius and Alexander and uh, people like that. That's what we'll talk about next week if we have time to get to that. That'll take a little bit of unpacking but just to give you a heads up so where we're going. It doesn't depend on it. It doesn't depend on, but your view of God will affect every dimension of your life. Mm -hmm. And so. Uh, so you're saying God changed his position? <laughs> I'm saying that, or. As far as you believe. Oh, I, ch oh, I changed my position. 
Yes, I changed my position. He didn't change his. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I used to hold the other position because that's all I ever heard. And then I was like, oh, hmm, this does resonate with Nicaea. So it's always good to like read outside of your circles because you kind of get you know, trapped in this one little bubble. And you're like, oh, well, this guy, this guy, this guy. It's kind of like we talked about several weeks ago with John MacArthur. He finally came around and said, oh, I was wrong about Jesus uh, being the eternal son of God. He came out and said, I thought that was a title that he got at the incarnation. And so John MacArthur came out several years ago and said, you know what, I've been wrong about this. So it's why we want to read outside of our circles. We want to be humble because we never uh, really arrive. What you believed as a 10-year-old Christian uh, might be different from what you believe as a 20-year-old Christian. Obviously, there's uh, a circle of orthodoxy you have to stay inside, but some people's views change on the gifts. Maybe they start charismatic and they're like, I'm no longer that, or I'm not charismatic and I became charismatic. And so there's a circle that we stay in, and so our views may change on those things. And so we have to be humble about that and treat one another with love and respect as well with people that we disagree with. So... um, Anyway, questions or comments? All right, let's close. Uh, Father, thank you for your love. Uh, We need your spirit to be able to understand you. Um, We want to believe your word. So give us faith to keep believing what it says, uh, not just about who you are uh, in your nature, but everything you've called us to be and do. We want to believe and submit ourselves to your word and not listen to our culture. And so... Uh, Give us faith to believe that what you say is right and true and help us to be obedient and keep transforming us, Lord, and keep teaching us and keep growing us, Lord. Uh, We will never arrive in this life nor in eternity, but we want to keep knowing you more and more. In your name we pray. Amen.